We apologize that this recording does not meet our standards of quality. However, we feel the material is important and pray that it will be helpful to you in your study of God's Word. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, you are so wonderful and you are so beautiful as the song has said. You are so majestic and so magnificent, so transcendent, so pure and holy, so far above and beyond sinners. You are so infinitely holy, and yet you have loved us. And you even came into our world to redeem us. We thank you for that. And as we talk about your redemption tonight, may our hearts be filled with gratitude. As we were reminded in the very first message of this conference, we serve you out of gratitude, out of a reciprocating love because of what you have graciously done for us. And I pray tonight as we take another glimpse at our redemption that it might fill our hearts with gratitude and with an awesome sense of privilege to serve such a God as we take the gospel to this desperately sinful world. Prepare our hearts by your spirit to receive your truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to take your Bible, if you will, and look with me at Galatians chapter 3. And I want to read a, a very significant and wonderful text, starting in verse 10 and reading down through verse 14. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse... For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 13 is the key, and I, I don't want to focus on much more than just that tonight. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Several years ago, Dr. Carl Menninger, who was a world-famous psychiatrist and head of the Menninger Clinic, wrote a book, and the title of the book was, Whatever Happened to Sin? Interesting, coming from a psychiatrist, wanting to call people back to a recognition that problems are a direct result of sin. In that book, he tried to have people face the reality of their problems, and the reality is that they are sinful. The book was widely read and widely discussed and narrowly believed. Today in our culture, sin is not even an acceptable word, let alone an acceptable cause for the troubles of life. 
There's so much talk about values, and we are concerned about whether we can maintain traditional values, whether we have certain values in our culture that can preserve us. But it's really impossible to discuss values unless you have a clear definition of sin. You cannot know what is right if you do not know what is wrong. And since sin is not an acceptable diagnosis of man's ills, we are in a very difficult predicament. We cannot define what is right because we will not define what is wrong. Even those who once defined certain behavior as sin have altered their definitions. Sin has undergone amazing changes. And if you just kind of read and listen and maybe look at books and, and articles in magazines or newspaper columns, you begin to see this. I had the opportunity to read the Dallas Morning News uh, in August, and there was an interesting article by Ann Melvin in there. This is what she wrote. She was writing about sin in the Dallas paper. She says this, Most sins have gained respectability through politics or profitability. They're mostly all legalized, advertised, organized, supervised, and taxed. We've got liquor by the drink and young girls dressed like hookers just to be in fashion at their homecoming dance. We've got your basic graphic sex on cable TV in an entertainment market from wind-up toys to electronic state-of-the-art based solely on violence. So hey, is it fair to name all these little uh, diversions sins? Sin? Go figure out how you can make a fortune for Time Warner with a recording about killing cops. How you can refuse to let school children say grace for lunch but teach them how to use a condom before recess. Clearly, we are floundering, a society preoccupied with values and hopelessly vague on sin. End quote. A sin doesn't fit our self-esteem preoccupation because if I'm trying to feel good about myself, I don't want to deal with sin. And sin doesn't fit our victimization concept either, because if I'm a victim, it's not my fault. So it can't be my sin. And those kinds of prevailing philosophies tend to eliminate sin. And all the people helpers, whether counselors or psychiatrists or psychologists, are championing redefining human behavior without sin, because sin is a spiritual issue, and they want to redefine human behavior as a mental issue so that they can offer their services as the cure-alls. Pure marketing and business. I picked up a new book a few months ago that sort of talks about the current attitude towards sin, and the title of it is, I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional. It's written by a kind of a progressive woman by the name of Wendy Kaminer, and in this secular book, the author confronts the new anthropology, she calls it, the new definition of man, the new psychology, and the new theology, and that's all one way of saying a society that doesn't recognize sin. She says, we live in a society that utterly denies any personal responsibility for sin. According to the current view, she writes, no matter how bad you've been in the narcissistic 1970s and the acquisitive 1980s, no matter how many drugs you've ingested or sex acts you've performed or how much corruption you've enjoyed, you're still essentially innocent. The divine child inside you is always untouched by the worst of your sins. She says these new definers of man's nature say, because no one is inhabited by evil or unhealthy urges, because inside every addict, that's the new title for 
sinners. Inside every addict is a holy child yearning to be free. She also assesses this new anthropology saying, and I quote, Inner children are always good and innocent and pure. Like the most sentimentalized Dickens characters, which means that people are essentially good and evil is merely a dysfunction. She writes, the therapeutic view of evil as sickness, not sin, is strong in current codependency theory. Shaming children is considered the primary form of child abuse. You make your child feel guilty, that is child abuse. And you watch, it'll be tested in the courts. Sickness is far more marketable than sin. Recently, a book came out written by a Harvard psychologist called The Diseasing of America. Redefining everything as a disease, which puts the church out of business because we don't deal with disease, we deal with spiritual issues. A failure to understand the sinfulness of man is the supreme tragedy. We heard a great word this morning, didn't we, in Romans 1 about the sinfulness of man. That is an essential component of the gospel that today is being mitigated, held back. We don't want to offend. But a failure to understand our sinfulness is the supreme tragedy because if you don't understand your sinfulness, you are obscured from understanding your redemption. We don't want to admit the disease, so we don't need the cure. And if we are going to reach out to the world, I am convinced we've got to talk about sin. Especially in this culture. Charles Sykes writes in his new book, everybody ought to read it, it's called A Nation of Victims. And the subtitle, The Decay of the American Character. This is what he says. Unfortunately, that is a formula for social gridlock. The irresistible search for someone or something to blame, colliding with the unmovable unwillingness to accept responsibility. Now enshrined in law and jurisprudence, victimism is reshaping the fabric of society, including employment policies, criminal justice, education, urban politics, and an increasingly Orwellian emphasis on sensitivity in language. A community of interdependent citizens has been displaced by a society of resentful, competing, and self-interested individuals who have dressed their private annoyances in the garb of victimism. And that famous writer, Dr. Bernie Zilbergeld, who might have heard of, and I don't know who else has, says, he's got an interesting book, by the way, called, uh, I think it's, the seducing of America, something like that. Anyway, he says, in the therapeutic view, that's the view that people have therapeutic problems, not spiritual ones. In the therapeutic view, people are not regarded as vile or as having done anything they should feel guilty about, but there is certainly something wrong with them. Specifically, they are too guilty, too inhibited, not confident and assertive enough, not able to express and fulfill themselves properly, and without a doubt, not as joyful and as free from stress as they ought to be. Thank you, Bernie. And then Sykes writes, Encouraged by the medicalization of wrongdoing, defendants charged with murder, with rape, with robbery, have cited the cause as PMS, alcoholism, drug use, Twinkies. This is true, in a court of law. Excessive TV watching, lovesickness as their defense. 
Mothers who kill their children have claimed they suffer from postpartum depression. A defense that even proved successful for a pediatric nurse who suffocated two of her babies and attempted to suffocate a third. Everyone has a disease, everybody has an addiction, everybody has a disorder, everybody has a syndrome, nobody has a sin. And the satanic counterfeit of the true condition of man is cutting people off from redemption. You understand that? Because if you don't recognize the disease, you are not looking for the cure. This is not a time for the church to capitulate and appease this mentality. It is a time for the church to confront it and preach sin. Otherwise, people aren't going to know their problem and they're not going to know there's a solution. Let me tell you something. Absolution from sin... Cultural absolution from sin has a high price. Do you know what it is? Damnation. That's its price. The glory of the Redeemer is lost to someone who will not acknowledge sin. Now, perhaps the most concise text that we could look at to elucidate this theme of man understanding his true condition and looking to the redemption of Christ is here in Galatians 3.13. Let's go back to that verse. And I just want to plant this one verse in your mind as an evangelical, evangelistic weapon for you to use. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, simply, let's talk first of all about the problem. Point number one, the problem. The problem is, in verse 13, the curse of the law. That's our problem. You say, what's that? Go back to verse 10. Here's the curse of the law. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That is a direct quote out of Deuteronomy 21, chapter 21, verse 26. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is this. The curse of the law is that if you ever break one part of God's law, you are damned. That's the curse. That's the curse. I suppose most people think of the Ten Commandments as a kind of a nice ethical system, uh, God's moral code summarized, and uh, it's a nice thing to sort of shoot at, um, and if you give it a good try, God will understand and He'll let you into heaven. It's sort of a nice standard. It's not hard and fast. God understands, and if you just make a, a sort of a shot at it, you'll be all right. Certainly, there were people in Paul's day who were banking on that attitude. They were called Judaizers. They were trying to earn their salvation. That was the whole Jewish system. And they were believing they could keep the law, at least part of it. They knew they couldn't keep it all. They knew they broke parts of it all the time. But they figured if they made a good run at it and gave it a good shot, God would overlook the failures. In fact, the average Jewish scholar held that the vulgar, they had a word for them, the amharets, the, the common folk who had neither knowledge or interest in the law would be damned by the law but those folks who understood it and made a shot at it would be okay God would pass them mockingly for example in John 7:49, the leaders said this multitude which does not know the law is cursed you see they thought the common people were cursed in their ignorance but because they knew the law even though they couldn't keep it all they were going to be alright here Paul turns the tables on them from their 
revered Pentateuch and quotes right out of Deuteronomy, Cursed are all those who do not persevere in doing all that is written in the law. And that's why Romans 4.15 says the law works wrath. The law works wrath. Every person in the world is under the curse of the law because every person in the world has broken God's law. Every single person in the world has broken the law of God. Every person in the world is under the curse. And what does the word curse mean? It means devoted to destruction. Very strong word. The Greek word means doomed. It means despised. It means consigned to damnation. There are three Hebrew words. They all mean the same thing. Devoted to doom. Devoted to damnation. Devoted to destruction. Now there is the true picture of man from God's viewpoint. He has violated God's law, and if you want to know how he's violated it, you can just remember the message this morning on Romans 1. He has violated God's law, consequently he is damned. He is devoted to destruction. He is, as Paul calls him in Ephesians, a child of wrath. Now this whole matter of being devoted to destruction is pretty serious stuff. If you were to go back to the context of Deuteronomy, you might be shocked to find out what it really was like to be cursed by God. Let me just kind of fill in some of the thoughts from there. I don't want to take the time, but read Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and read all the curses there and you'll get a little bit of a feeling about how God feels toward people who have broken his law even once. Let me just give you some excerpts from Deuteronomy 28 starting at verse 20 and flowing on. Just listen. Don't need to look at it. Just listen carefully. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your doings because you have forsaken me. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever, inflammation, fiery heat, with drought and with blasting and with mildew. The Lord will cause you to be de defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them and, and flee seven ways before them. You will be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will smite you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you will grope at noonday as the blind grope in the darkness. You shall betroth a wife, and another man shall lie with her. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and it shall not be in the power of your hand to prevent it, so that you shall be driven mad by the sight which your eyes shall see. You shall become a horror, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you. All these curses will come upon you and pursue you and overtake you. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart by reason of the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness, in want of all things. Listen to this. You shall eat the offspring of your own body. The flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies will distress you. Life's going to become so tough for you that you're going to eat your babies. What God is saying is this, exactly what it says in Romans 1, because of the way you've broken my law, I'm going to give you over to the natural consequence of your iniquities. Listen to what else he says. The most tender and delicately bred women among you 
who would not venture to set the sole of her foot upon the ground because she is so delicate and tender will grudge to the husband of her bosom, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears because she will eat them secretly for want of all things in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you. It's incredible, isn't it? When God says, I'm going to curse you, he's talking about some unbelievable things. Do people eat their children? Have they historically? Yes. Even the afterbirth? Unthinkable. If you are not careful, he goes on, to do all the words of this law, which are written in this book, in the Pentateuch, the law of God, that you may fear this glorious and awful name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting, and he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, which you were afraid of, and they'll cling to you every sickness, every affliction, until you are destroyed. Until you are destroyed. That's a curse. Now go back to verse 10 of Galatians 3 and see if it doesn't hit you with a harder impact. Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Pretty serious, isn't it? The psalmist said, God will shatter the heads of his enemies. God will shatter the heads of his enemies. The psalmist said, add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from thee. He said, return sevenfold into the bosom of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted thee, O Lord. He said, let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against a rock. In fact, so strong is the language of cursing that C.S. Lewis wrote, In some of the Psalms, the spirit of hatred which strikes us in the face is like the heat from a furnace mouth. And a man named R.M. Benson wrote in 1901 a book called The War Songs of the Prince of Peace. And in it, he said no less than 39 Psalms were war songs against sinners. One English study in 1974 concluded that 84 psalms were not fit for Christians to sing. Prophet Nahum said, The Lord is a jealous God and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is a God of blood and judgment. Isaiah said, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the earth a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. For the wrath of God shall be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And even... The wonderful and winsome and tender Lord Jesus Christ said, Depart, you cursed, into everlasting fire. And a number of times he pronounced woe. Woe is another name for a curse. In Romans 12, God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
All of that to say an inability to keep the law brings somebody under a curse that ultimately ends in eternal damnation. But even the process of getting there is painful. The law itself, now follow this thought, is the very tool of that curse. The law is the very tool of that curse. You see, God's law doesn't do anything but curse us. You understand that? As holy and just and good as it is, Paul says in Romans 7, it doesn't do anything for us but damn us. You say, well, why is that so and how is that so? Let me give you a little list. Just follow this reasoning. Here's why the law can only curse you. One, the law requires behavior contrary to human nature. Is that not true? I'll ask you a simple question. What is the summation of the law? If you took the whole law of God and summed it up into one command, what would it be? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can anybody in their human nature do that? The law requires behavior that is contrary to human nature. It demands you to do what you hate. It demands you to do what you can't do. And it demands you to stop doing what you love doing and what you're very able to do. It calls for you to do opposite your longings, opposite your desire, opposite your lusts. It asks you to change your natural desires and that is impossible. The law requires behavior that is contrary to human nature. Secondly. The law demands you to do impossible things. It is not only against your will, but it is against your ability. And we already said that in effect. Sinners can't do holy deeds. Sinners can't think holy thoughts. Sinners can't speak holy words. Sinners can't operate under holy motives. Even their best is filthy rags. Thirdly, the law requires perfect performance in every part you see, that's why I say that all the law can do is curse you. Because it demands perfect performance in every part. It asks you to do what you don't want to do. It asks you to do what you can't do. And then it asks you to do it perfectly. The longer you hang around the law, the worse you're going to be. Fourthly. The law refuses to accept your good intentions as any consolation for your disobedience. The law refuses to accept your good intentions. Trying doesn't count. Even if there was some effort made, some good moral intent, intention counts for nothing. There is no consolation bracket in God's tournament. Fifthly, the law accepts no payback plan. The law of God accepts no payback plan. You can't say, God, I know I broke your law, but I want to offer you a plan. I got a deal that uh, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you back one righteous deed every month until I get that debt paid. I know I've accumulated a lot, but I'll, I'll work it off. I'll pay it off. Your present and future righteousness is not accrued to the account of your sins. The debt is never discounted. It is never repayable. The sin that you have accumulated will never be expiated by anything good that you might do ever in your life. In fact, 
If you were to break the law once in the beginning of your life and never break it again the rest of your life, the millions of good things you had done wouldn't atone for the one sin you did when you began and you'd spend eternity in hell. There's no accumulated merit plan to pay for past sin. On the other hand, if you kept the law all your life and broke it once on your deathbed, all the accumulated merit of righteousness wouldn't expiate that one sin. Number six, the law is an unrelenting taskmaster. The law is an unrelenting taskmaster. You say, what do you mean by that? What I mean is it never eases up. It never lightens the load. God never says, hey, take three days off. You know, you guys have been really hammering on this deal on the law. Just take three days off and do whatever you want. And I'm going to give you three, you know, this is a freebie. No, it's stringent, it's unbending, it's unrelenting. There are no days off. It never gives the sinner one moment's rest. The demand hammers and hammers and hammers and hammers and never goes away. It never relaxes its requirements. Number seven, the law shatters happiness. Believe me, it does. Say, what do you mean by that? I'll tell you what I mean by that. Anybody who has a sense of awareness about their own sin lives with a certain amount of shame and guilt and restlessness and sorrow and fear and pain and dissatisfaction and futility and doubt and hopelessness. Sin smashes life. It just does that. Number eight, the law requires the severest penalty. Hell with no parole. Hell with no time off for good behavior. Number nine, the law only demands, it doesn't help. The law only demands, it doesn't help. It offers you no power, it offers you no plan, it offers you no strength, it offers you no assistance at all, ever, of any kind. Listen to this one, number ten. The law offers no salvation. No deliverance, no forgiveness. Number 11, the law listens to nobody's repentance. The law listens to nobody's repentance. Doesn't care about your sorrow, doesn't care about your tears, doesn't care about your grief. You can cry yourself sick. The law has no concern for your remorse. The law doesn't care how many tears you shed, how weepy you are, how broken you are. The law doesn't care how penitent you are. The law doesn't care how deep the desire is to make amends and change your life. The law is absolutely cold and indifferent to your repentance. It doesn't care. Number 12, the law offers no grace and no mercy. None. Number 13, the law offers no hope, no promise of eternal life, no promise of a better tomorrow, no promise of a future. And then two final things. The law stirs up what? Sin. It just stirs it up, Romans 7. Paul says, I saw the law of God and it excited sin in me. It's like the sign that says, don't do this. And something in you says, I have to do that. It just excites sin. And then finally, the law reveals sin. I gave you a lot there. But I'll tell you, that's very important stuff. The law requires behavior that is contrary to human nature, demands that you do impossible things, requires that you do them perfectly, refuses to accept your good intentions and effort as any consolation, accepts no payback plan, as an unrelenting taskmaster shatters your happiness, requires the severest penalty. 
The law only demands it doesn't help. It offers no salvation. It listens to no one's repentance. It gives no grace and mercy, offers no hope, only stirs up sin and reveals it. Now do you understand why it says in our passage, the curse of the law? It's a curse. It just leaves you cursed. That's all it does. It just damns us. And that's the condition the world is in. They've broken God's law, and they're cursed, big time, and hopelessly so. Don't you think that if we're going to reach the world, they need to know that? Can we soft sell that? I don't think so. Let's move from the problem to the second, second point, the provision. The provision. Back to verse 13. Here's the provision. Christ redeemed us. Does that take on new meaning for you? I mean, we were deep in the pit, right? Those little words, Christ redeemed us. What does that mean? He bought us out from under the curse. He ransomed us by paying the full price. Exagorazo means to buy out of the marketplace. Like slaves. Paul says he gave himself a ransom for us. For all of us. He gave himself for us, Titus 2.14, that he might redeem us. How did he do that? How did Jesus do that? I mean, we were deep in this curse. How did he do that? I, I just, I'm overwhelmed by this. Look at verse 13. How did he do it? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having what? Having what? Become a curse for us. He took our curse. And when he's hanging on the cross, you feel it. He says, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? And the answer is because you are cursed. He bore in his own body our sins. All the full fury of God's curse fell on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he took our place. And he paid our price. And Paul sees a graphic way to illustrate that. So he says in verse 13, For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he takes that right out of Deuteronomy 21, 23. You know what he meant by that? Criminals sentenced to death under Mosaic law and executed by stoning, which was the way they were executed, were then usually tied to a post. Why did they do that? They wanted to display them so everybody else would know what happens to people who sin that kind of sin. When a criminal was sentenced and executed by being crushed under stones, they were then tied to a post. So when you saw some body tied to a post, you know that body had been cursed by God. And when you look at the cross, what do you see? You see a body, the body of Jesus Christ, tied to a post, cursed by God. There he took the curse for us. And that leads us to a third point. The purpose. The purpose. Verse 14 
in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham is justification by faith. Abraham was saved by faith, was he not? Romans chapter 4, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So two things come out of our redemption. First, justification. The blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus comes to the rest of us. Secondly, we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's sanctification by the Spirit. So we go from being cursed to being justified and sanctified. He became a curse. Redeem us from the curse of the law that he might justify us, that is, make us right with God, and sanctify us, put his Holy Spirit within us. That's why we're transformed. I don't know about you, but if somebody offered me that kind of a gospel, I'd be prone to accept it, wouldn't you? What person in their right mind would say, I'll stick with my curse, thank you. He became a curse that he might give us Christ and that he might give us the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 16:22, one of the verses that haunts me as much as any in the New Testament, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him be what? Accursed. That's it. If you don't love Christ, you are left under the curse. God is calling out a redeemed people. Young people, God is calling out a redeemed people in this world. And bless His wonderful name, you and I are a part of that redeemed people, aren't we? He's calling out a redeemed people who have had the curse removed. And we are called to come alongside and help Him gather that redeemed humanity. And the only way to do it is to confront the reality of it. Sin and redemption. In closing, I want to take the high ground. I mean, I want to go all the way to the top. I want to take you to the loftiest place with regard to this entire matter. Turn to Titus 1, 1 and 2. And we're going to stop right here, but I just want to end on this incredible note. Paul understood what he was all about. And he sets a pattern for us. He understood that God was gathering a redeemed humanity. He understood that God in His grace and mercy was reaching down to men and women under the curse and was offering them redemption and giving them justification and sanctification. Paul understood that. So he says in the first two verses writing to Titus, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he describes what he was for, what he was doing. For the faith of those chosen of God. What's that? That's evangelism. My job is to preach the gospel to elicit faith in the hearts of the elect. Secondly, I'm not only for evangelism, but I'm for edification. The knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. 
My job, he says, as uh, one who comes alongside God and in his power helps him collect this redeemed humanity and accomplish this redemption is first of all to evangelize, that is to bring the gospel that elicits faith in the hearts of the elect and then to bring the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. And then he says there's a third thing. I, I not only involved myself in evangelism and edification but encouragement, verse 2, I also want to give them the hope of eternal life. I want them to live in hope. I want them to go through suffering and difficulty and pain and trial with encouragement because they know it's only temporary and they have a glorious eternal hope. I'm for evangelism and I'm for edification and I'm for encouragement. That's what I do. I come alongside this mass of unredeemed people and I expose them to the gospel of Jesus Christ and when they believe, then I lead them to the truth that produces godliness and the truth that produces hope in their hearts. But that second verse closes with what I think is the preeminent high ground. Just amazing. He says, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. You know what that phrase means? Literally. Before the times of the ages. Simplified, before time. All this before time. When is that? What was before time? You, what's the word? What's before time? Eternity. Eternity. What are we saying here? You mean to tell me that this whole redemptive plan was worked out before there was time? That means that the whole redemptive plan was worked out before there was creation? Because creation happened during time, didn't it? Days. You mean this whole redemptive deal was promised in eternity? Now the question is promised to whom? Who was it promised to? Go back to 2 Timothy 1.9. God, verse 9, who saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Oh, this is getting more amazing. In eternity, God made a promise. In eternity, God already granted salvation. That whole redemptive plan and purpose and choice and promise started in eternity past. That's why Hebrews 13.20, listen to this, calls it the eternal covenant. The eternal covenant. You say, well, what are you trying to say? I'll show you. Go to John 17 and you'll see it unfold. John 17. This to me is the high ground of commitment to evangelism to serving the Lord Jesus is praying in John 17 talking to his father so much richness here but verse 24 father I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. 
There's the answer to the whole deal. You ready for this? God the Father so totally loved God the Son that He said, I want to give you a gift. I want to give you a gift that expresses my love. And that gift is this. I'm going to create a world and out of that world I'm going to call a redeemed humanity. And I already know who they are and I already have a book called the Lamb's Book of Life and their names are already written in it from before the foundation of the world. And I'm going to call all of those people together and I'm going to give them to you to love you and worship you and serve you and glorify you forever and ever and ever and ever. That is my love gift to you within the Trinity. It's incredible. We think we're the, we think we're the most important player in this whole deal, don't we, sometimes? You know why I've been saved? Because God is offering me to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a gift of His love. That's why John 6 says, All that the Father gives to me will what? Will come to me. The Father wrote all the names down. And here is this incredible plan and promise whereby God gives to the Lord Jesus a redeemed humanity, makes the promise in eternity past, brings the promise to fulfillment through the redemption in the Old Covenant, the redemption in the New Covenant, the redemption in the tribulation to come, the redemption in the time of the kingdom, and a whole mass of redeemed humanity are given to Christ as the gift of love of the Father, and they spend forever and ever and ever and ever and ever singing, Worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb. Say, well, that's a nice gift. And I'm happy to be in it. But what does the Lord give to the Father? And the answer is this. The day will come. In 1 Corinthians 15 it tells us. When he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That is the feet of Christ. He's got it all. And then, verse 28, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, that God may be all in all. You know what's going to happen? When we're all the sons, the Son will then take us and what? And give us to the Father. And say, this is my gift of love back to you. I want to be faithful in evangelism because people are cursed and they're going to hell. I want to be faithful in evangelizing this world because I'm grateful. I have gratitude in my heart because I'm a part of the redeemed who have been redeemed from the curse because Jesus took the curse for me. And I want to be a part of evangelizing the world because I can't conceive of a more noble thing to do with my life than to assist the Father in giving a love gift to the Son which will be given back to the Father. Father, we thank you tonight for the great truth 
that your word has taught us. We want so much to serve you with a whole heart. But we are so weak. Oh, we often imagine ourselves to be strong and healthy and holy. But the way to real health is to recognize that we are weak and sick and sinful. We're all invalids in God's hospital. In moral and spiritual terms, we're all sick and damaged and diseased and deformed, scarred and sore, lame and lopsided to a far, far greater extent than we realize. And our spiritual life is a fragile convalescence, easily disrupted. But Lord, this week has been a week for us maybe to get spiritually healthy. I just pray for every person here that your Holy Spirit would work in their heart and that you would give us such a picture of this task of reaching a lost world, a picture like maybe we've never had before, a picture of their horrible condition so that we may reach them out of compassion. A picture of our exalted condition so that we may reach them out of gratitude. A picture of your incredible, unimaginable plan to think that we could be a part of the Father's gathering his love gift for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we want that. But indeed, our convalescence is fragile. We just seem to get well and we have a relapse. Infuse us with spiritual strength that we might be sound and healthy and useful. While your heads are bowed for just a moment, will you just talk with the Lord and commune with Him now about your own heart, commitment to God, commitment to the church, commitment to the world. Where are you? Maybe it's time for you to say, I renew that commitment, Lord. Maybe it's time for you to say, forgive me for my sin and my apathy and my indifference, my self-centeredness. I want to be all that you want me to be. Give me the compassion of Jesus who looked at a cursed world and wept. Give me a heart of gratitude. A great duty belongs to a great benefit. Give me a sense of the loftiness of what it is that I do as I assist the Father in the gathering of His love gift for the Son. Give me a new vision of what you want me to be. Take a moment in silent prayer. Now, Father, we ask that you would accomplish in all of our hearts that which pleases you. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.